All right, I want to talk to you out of a question that was asked me um, this week. Um, some of the conclusions that I want to share with you will probably be of great interest to any of you that happen to be at wit off this last couple of weeks and some of the questions that have arisen and um, that I would like to uh, just address a little with you. Um, I hope you're okay with the fact that uh, Chris and I are engaged in a journey that we have not concluded yet. And that makes some people very uncomfortable, but it's a journey that has caused us to reevaluate and reassess our understanding of what we know as the gospel of our appreciation of and the status of the Bible, and also the position that Jesus plays in the context of our lives, and even that may sound strange to you, the role that Christ plays in the context of Christianity. Um, we are at the moment reading a book that I think is, is excellent, um, which is called A New Kind of Christianity by Brian D. McLaren. Not to be confused with an earlier book he wrote, which is A New Kind of Christian, so if you're going to buy it, don't buy the wrong book. It's A New Kind of Christianity by Brian D. McLaren. Now, I personally love this book because I, I don't like people just to throw ideas at me that are unsubstantiated or just seem to be... Um, what's bugging them and therefore you have to accept it because it bugs them and so they argue against something but don't give you any real substance. Well, I think Brian McLaren's book is, is for me at this moment, the best thesis, and I would call it a thesis, not because it's hard to read, because it's very easy to read, but it's a thesis because it, it's dealing with the subject matter and expressing it in a way that is convincing and, and uh, saturated with good evidential thinking is, in my view, uh, just absolutely excellent. And if you're wanting to track the journey, some of the journey that we are on at this time, then I think Brian McLaren's book would be a very good, a very good read for any of you that are interested. Um, in it come these questions, which I think are very healthy questions, because... Um, I feel very often that we have had our church's version of Augustine's version, of Paul's version, of who Jesus was and what Jesus meant, right? And uh, with all my heart, I'm desperately trying to, hopefully in a spirit of humility, come back to get Jesus' version of, uh, of what Paul meant, so that we just get an understanding of the gospel that probably helps us in our generation to readdress some issues. Now, in, in, in that sense, I, I was asked a question that I, I couldn't get off my, my mind this week and I wanted to deal with. The question was, are atheists and agnostics going to hell? That was the question. Are atheists and agnostics going to hell? Now, my response to that question was this. That depends what you mean. It depends, number one, by what do you mean by hell and going there. 
Because if we don't clarify that, I don't know whether atheists and agnostics are going because I need to understand what you mean by going to hell. We also raise the second question, which is what do you mean by atheist and agnostic? And also a third question, which was, would being that, an atheist or an agnostic, inevitably mean that you were going to hell in whatever form you believe that to be? So I was struggling with the question because the question to me wasn't as straightforward as it appeared unless you answer those three questions about the question. So I want to deal with that for a few minutes and for a very specific reason. Question one, what do you mean by hell and going there? Um, I've said this to you before, but it may be of interest, and again, particularly if you were at, at Witoft, I think my views on this may have some interest to you. Hell is mentioned only, depending on the version of the Bible you read, only 13 or 14 times in the whole of the New Testament. Now, I, I've, I've preached this and talked about this uh, and discussed this many times, but I still find that statement shocking. I don't know about you that hell is only actually mentioned 13 or 14 times in the whole of the New Testament. Now, if you exclude the repeats, in the Gospels, it is only mentioned seven times. So there are repeats of the same incident. So in the Gospels, hell is actually only mentioned seven times. That's all, just seven times. Now, you also have to consider that the English word that we use, hell, is, is broadly translated from three Greek words. One is, is, is uh, Gehenna, which is the word that Jesus always used. Gehenna was um, a garbage tip in the Valley of Hinnom that was well known to the people of Jesus' day. So when Jesus said, you'll find yourself in Gehenna, it would be like me saying to you, if you do this, you'll find yourself in the James Street tip, Right? That's how clear it would be. You'll find yourself in the recycling center or you'll find yourself in the landfill site. So when Jesus used the word Gehenna, which is what Jesus always used that we translate hell, uh, people understood that this was an awful place where the garbage and dead animals were thrown outside the city and there was weeping and there was wailing and there was gnashing of teeth and maggots never died and fires were burning all the time. So... So when Jesus talked about hell, he used the word Gehenna, which, which really related to this awful place of death, decay, and garbage outside the city. There's another Greek word that's used, which is the word Hades. Of course, any of you that have watched much movies or Disney movies will be familiar with the word Hades. Hades comes from the Greek version of the afterlife of which, which occurs when a person is dead. It's the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, there was one word that's translated hell, which is the word Sheol. And Sheol is the same as the word Hades, but in Hebrew, which meant the place where dead people are held or where they go when they're dead. The third word from the Greek that's translated hell in our Bible is the word Tartarus. Tartarus was a, a word stolen from Greek mythology, which literally means uh, the underworld where, where demigods are judged. That's only mentioned one time in Scripture, and that's talking about the judgment of angels. So we have this issue that we have to look at, that, that hell has become such a dominant theme in what many people believe to be the gospel. Now, here's my problem. 
How can something only mentioned seven times in the gospel and 14 times in the whole of the Bible and three different words used for that hold such a dominant place in our understanding of the gospel and therefore our conclusions about what the gospel is there to save us from? There are many other things in Scripture that are mentioned many more times than that that I believe the gospel is related to saving us from. And so we have this issue that excluding those repeats, we only have it seven times in the gospel. The Apostle John, who was the closest to Jesus, who wrote three epistles and and one gospel, or they were written in his name, never mentions hell. How many of you know this? Paul, the Apostle Paul... The champion of evangelical theology does not mention hell. Isn't that fascinating? James, Jesus' brother, only mentions it one time. And it's mentioned one time by Peter, which is the one that is Tartarus when he's talking about judging angels. When you add to this business that Aedes, this equivalent idea to Sheol, is only mentioned five times and some variations in the translations, depending on whether you read it, give grave or Hades, because it's talking about the grave or death. Hell, therefore, in all its forms, excluding repeats, is mentioned approximately 14 times in the whole of the New Testament. The point being, hell cannot be considered to be the dominant theme in Scripture that we have made it in the church. In contrast to that, heaven is mentioned 225 times. Okay, So we've got 225 times mentioned heaven, 14 mentions of hell. So how come in our conclusions of the gospel and how we deal with people that somehow they have become equivalent measures of importance in the narrative of the gospel? That if you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. If you're not going to hell, you're going to heaven. It raises questions to say, as our conclusions about heaven and about hell being the Jesus conclusions... Or our denomination's version of Augustine's version of Paul's version. See where I'm coming from. So, so, so when I was asked the question, do atheists and agnostics go to hell? I first have to say it depends what we mean by hell. Now what's also interesting is in the life and ministry of Jesus, the focus in the Gospels is never on where hell is, but what hell is in the mentions that are made. It's also interesting that whenever Jesus referred to heaven, usually in the term the kingdom of heaven, which also means the kingdom of God, it just depends how you translate it, that Jesus never talked about where it was, he always talked about what it was. So we have to draw from that conclusion that in the gospel it's more important they understand what hell is and what heaven is than where hell is and where heaven is. Because if I understand the what, I'll probably not need the where. So when Jesus talked about heaven, he didn't talk about heaven as being somewhere where you go. He talked about heaven being something that comes to you in your life and that the power of the gospel is that the presence of God in the kingdom of heaven comes and be resident in your life right now. That's why Paul, understanding that, said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or in other words, the same presence that fills me in the body is the same presence that fills me when this body dies and I lose this body. The same heaven, the same presence, the same kingdom is still manifesting within me. So, that's a question. So, 
Are atheists and agnostics going to hell? Depends what you mean by hell. Second question. What do you mean by atheist and agnostic? You say, well, it's obvious what we mean. Well, not particularly, as I'm going to show you, because this is the way that I think. I, I just got one slide just to give you a definition on this. An atheist is a person who disbelieves or lacks belief in the existence of God or gods. A theist is a person who believes in the existence of God or gods. An agnostic is a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God. A gnostic is a person possessing knowledge, especially esoteric, mystical knowledge, i.e. regarding the existence and nature of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed something up there, but simply we have theist and Gnostic, right? And we have atheist and a or agnostic. We simply add one letter onto the front to make a difference. I want you to see that if you separate the A from the theist in an atheist and you just give a little bit of space for thought, a little bit of space for mystery, you change the whole nature of the belief system of an atheist. And really a theist is an atheist who's put a little bit of space between the A and the theist, has made room for mystery, has made room for something beyond that which we can explain or understand. Now, for those of you who get into debates and conversations with people who claim to be atheists, who will try and intimidate you and bully you with the science that they say exists to prove there cannot possibly be a God, are doing the same thing that fundamental Christians or fundamental Muslims do to people. They are bullying you with things that actually they have no grounding to prove are reality. Don't buy into that. Don't be intimidated. Don't let people who only know what somebody told them make you feel like a complete dummy because they say science has disproved God. Science has not disproved God. Science cannot disprove God. My neighbor is very interesting because he is a doctor. His, his partner is a doctor. He's, he's a doctorate. She's a, she's a chemist and he's a, he's a scientist. Very intelligent, very highly educated, but I had a wonderful conversation with, me, with him. He said, he said I, though I have the weight within scientific community trying to tell me there is no God, I cannot accept that. I said, why can't you accept that, Rob? He said, because it's always confused me how many mathematician professors at the top of their profession believe in God. And he was referring to people like um, the professor of mathematics in Oxford, uh, Dr. John, Professor John Knox. And he said, what amazes me is these people who have the most um, uh, ordered minds, the most reasoned minds, because they're all into mathematics, it has to work out. He says, I have to ask the question, why are so many of those whose only conclusion is to use reason, why did they conclude that there is a God, that there is a spirit in man, and that man has a need? He says, in view of that, I cannot go along with the bullying scientific viewpoint that says science says there is no God. 
So the issue is, can on the other side one prove that there is a God that also becomes just as difficult because it then becomes subjective and mostly experiential or also added to that is the way that we were raised. I was raised with such a strong belief towards God that it would have been strange for me to have rejected that belief in God because it was as easy as falling off a bike. To me, it was so obvious. Now, you have to be compassionate that others, and maybe you are here today, were raised at the other spectrum of being told it's all rubbish, there is no God, a phrase that's used, the Bible is just a hate rag, and there can be no God. Religion has caused all the wars in the world. Of course, that's also nonsense. I heard somebody trying to defend the atheistic viewpoint the other day, saying you've never heard anybody invade a country in the name of atheism. And I said, no, you're absolutely right. But what do we call it when people invade countries because they want their oil? Or because they want their gold? Or because they don't agree with their political persuasion? We just don't call it atheism, but it's greed. It's godlessness that takes advantage of another man. So don't be intimidated in the whole issue that you have no ground to stand on if you happen to be a theist. All I say I've done is I've made a little space in there in all the confusion about who God is and why God and the existence. I've made a little space in there for the mystery which is life. For the unseen, the unknown, the things that we can't explain, the things that scientifically have no ground in reason. Why did I fall in love with Chris and why did she love me back? What scientific scientific calculation could you cause to make that happen and what is love anyway and how can love be love and how can love be specific and individual and why isn't it the same towards everybody do you see where I'm coming from there are so many things in there about life that wonderfully not just in the Christian tradition but in most faith traditions make room for that mystery for the inexplicable and the wonderful. And so in this, there's just a space in there. The same with an agnostic, a person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God. When Gnostic, a Gnostic is simply a person possessing knowledge. So I hope you can see that in there, just, just a little space is what makes the difference between atheist and a theist, agnostic and the Gnostic. Actually, we're not that far apart, if the truth be known. And the more you grab it and say, I am a theist, a believer in God, or I am an atheist, the truth is we are so close because the amount of faith that's flowing in there, believing in what we cannot prove, is pretty equal on both sides of the fence. You need, in my view, massive faith to be an atheist. In fact, in my view, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a theist. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because we have to believe certain things and, and the weight of proof so often is put down on Christians to say, prove there is a God. Well, why should the weight of proof be on you? Let the weight of proof be on the other person and you stick with the faith because you've made room for mystery and for reason. Just leaving that little blank space in this life-defining description of oneself makes a life-changing difference. So, here we are. So what do we mean by hell and going there? What do we mean by 
by atheist and what do we mean by agnostic? And then question three, which also concerned me, was would being that, would being an atheist and being an agnostic inevitably mean you were going to hell in whatever form you believe that? to be. Incidentally, on the hell issue, there's one other equation that gets thrown in there in Scripture known as the lake of fire, which most people trying to talk about hell will confuse you by linking them all together and saying this is all hell. I have to tell you, it's not, but I do believe there's something to avoid which is very important, and that's a little story for another day. So that third question, if you were an atheist, if I was an agnostic, would that invariably mean that I would be going to hell in whatever form hell would be deemed to be? Well, that would depend on not only what you believe about hell, but would also depend on what you believe about God. So very often what we believe about hell is being influenced by what we believe about God. So if you back-engineer this... Uh, What most people believe about hell leads to a very petty, mean, judgmental, nasty God who actually takes pleasure in destroying most of humanity in fire forever and forever and forever in torment and in other words punishing them eternally for things that they've done finitely that even the courts won't do that. Much to my dismay sometimes we let people out of prison who I don't think we should let out but we even have enough grace to let them out but then we talk about a God who forever and forever and forever and forever and forever will not only put people in prison but will torment them. Now does, does something not quite bind together there? Now, some of you will say, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, if you want to stay for another three or four hours, we can talk about that, but I'm presuming you don't. So, all I will say to you is this, is that the gospel narrative, if you read it correctly, is an evolving, emerging revelation of the dealings of God with humanity bringing us to the revelation of Jesus which carries us into a future that is not representative of all that has gone before but of something different to anything that has ever gone before. The Bible starts with the book of Genesis which means beginnings. In the beginning. It's fascinating that John, the closest disciple to Jesus, starts his book with in the beginning. But he doesn't say in the beginning was Adam. He says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And without him nothing has been made that nothing was made that has been made. So you say, well, that's confusing. What does he mean by the word? Then he explains, he said, What I mean by the word is the word became flesh. And lived among us and we saw the glory of the Father begotten in Jesus. We saw a revelation of a new Genesis. So we have in the beginning, which is Genesis, and we see all that narrative that most latch on to all about, we call it the fall. And some people call it original sin and the desperation of humanity. But John talks about a new Genesis in Jesus. He says that Jesus is not the correction of the first Genesis, he is the Genesis of a new experience, a new generation, a new race, a new people. In fact, Paul writes it this way, he says, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. In the first Adam, we died. In the last Adam, Jesus, we come alive. Jesus came 
to bring a new genesis to our world. Now, if you just wipe some things out of your head that people have put there and start to just look at Jesus the man and what he did in the earth, you find a man who emancipates people from slavery. He sets women free. He touches the untouchable. He accepts the unacceptable. He forgives the unforgivable. He hugs the unhuggable. He gives hope to the hopeless and life to the lifeless and strength to the strengthless. And he brings a new genesis and he says, I haven't come to start a religion called Christianity. The problem is we took Jesus... And made a religion around him called Christianity. Now, I understand we have to have terminology for groups of people. But sometimes that's been as much a burden as it has a help. Because now we have a concept of what we think Christianity is that causes me to ask questions about this. Because our normal concept would be atheists and agnostics are going to hell. Wouldn't that be the normal context? And so unless we have a fresh understanding of God himself and what we believe about God, then what we believe about most other things is going to be severely affected. And so my challenge to you is, um, and this is probably, this, this is good advice, but probably not the best advice to people who are wanting to join a church that they're comfortable with. You might need to take a step back. And ask the question, what do I really believe about God? And is what I believe about God got anything to do with the God of Jesus, the Father of Jesus? Is it the God that religious institution has gradually developed to support its doctrine? Or is it the God who is revealed in Jesus in the Bible? And can I be willing to have the faith to step back and re-meet God? To allow God to be revealed as he is rather than as the institution wants to paint him. Now, if you think I'm being critical of the church as an organization, I I am and I aren't. I've been part of it a long time. I am of some of the things that I think misrepresent where we need to go. But I'm also very grateful for the kindness and the love and the generosity and the help and what has happened in our world because of the expansion of the Christian faith, which which has been absolutely incredible. But I'm just trying to bring you to a place where in the progression of this wonderful message of Jesus, we in our generation can catch on to the truth of it and let it live on in others. So that question three, do atheists and agnostics then go to hell, whatever that is, would depend not only what you believe about hell, but also what you believe about God. What if there are atheists and agnostics who God doesn't see as atheist and agnostic? What if? What if God looks at you and sees you as an atheist or an agnostic? You say, how can God do that? I've been in church because what if the God that you believe in is not the God one day you stand before? What what if that God who you have sold into that God of judgments and that God of hell. What, what, if, what if that's not the God of heaven? What if that's become a God of our creation, a God of our invention, a God of our misrepresentation? What if God were to look at me and say, you lived as an atheist all your Christian life? It'd be shocking, wouldn't it? 
Now, if you think that could never happen, there's a very fascinating part of the Gospels where Jesus says these words. It's really staggering. He says, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. Not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, surely then, he's obviously not talking about just regular Joe plodding the streets, going about his business. He's actually talking about the faith community who would call him Lord, Lord. But he said, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, there'll be people who heal the sick in my name. There are people who cast out demons in my name. There are people who prophesy in my name. He said, but I'll say on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. Isn't that staggering? These are scriptures we don't often preach about because, A, some people find them a little too difficult. And it's always interesting, and and I can be guilty of the same thing, that when people preach this and say, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, it's funny how the one who's preaching it always considers themselves not to be one of those who, when they say, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so I, I, trust, I, I trust that I can be, have some sense of humility in that to appreciate that my own journey must reflect your journey and your journey must reflect my journey, that we have to say there is a risk therefore in there that the one who we call Lord and who we have stationed as Lord may only be an image of the one who really is Lord, may only be a projection because of our religious concept of the one who really is Lord. And I'm very cautious that I want to be sure that the reflection that I see is the accurate reflection of the God who I believe exists, who I believe is love and kindness and forgiveness, who I believe has resolved the issues of humanity in the sacrifice of his son who I believe in Jesus has revealed himself back to us so that you and I can have a new genesis in our life. See, when genesis happened, darkness became light. Which is always good, isn't it? Chaos became order. And nothingness became something. So if I find this new genesis in Christ, then something can be made out of nothing. So you might come with nothing tonight, but something can be made out of that nothing. You might come with chaos, but order can be spoken into that chaos. And you may come with darkness and depression and oppression and obsession, but light can come into that because in Christ there is a new genesis. But that new genesis comes from recognizing the real God who is the God of Jesus. So... What if there are atheists and agnostics who God does not see as atheistic and agnostic? I mean, I just get this image of somebody coming and saying, I was an atheist and God laughing, finding it quite amusing. And then saying, so describe to me why you were an atheist. Well, I was an atheist because... You know, this genocidal, murdering, nasty, mean, judgmental God who sends people to hell forever just for the slightest little thing, even just for not acknowledging him. And I can see God there saying, do you know what? I wouldn't have believed in that God either. See, how many of you know that sometimes the presentation of who God is 
gives many people no option but to be an atheist or an agnostic because they have to say, I cannot follow that kind of God. Therefore, God has to be something more than what sometimes we have conveyed to people, which is the root of that question that is focused on the fact of God sending people to hell. So the focus is not does God love atheists and agnostics, but will atheists and agnostics go to hell? And much rather the question be, can the love of God touch an atheist? Can the love of God touch an agnostic? Because I would propose to you that when that happens, uh, the A separates... And you become a theist. The A separates and you become a Gnostic. Because something came into the mix there that has changed your view of God. See, if they refuse to believe in a God presented to them who is nothing like God, would they then be judged by their refusal of God as a principle or unwillingness to accept a presentation of God distorted by institutional religious thinking? Shall I read that to you again? If they refuse to believe in a God presented to them who is nothing like God, would they then be judged by their refusal of God as a principle or unwillingness to accept a presentation of God distorted by institutional religious thinking? I would have to say to you that if that was their only experience of and... and exposure to the goodness of God that God in his just nature could not say you're going to hell because you're an atheist or you're going to hell because you're an agnostic. He would have to say I don't believe in that God either. And I didn't want you to believe in that God. How many of you know what it means to be just? To be just doesn't mean to keep the rules or enforce the rules. See again, here's our interpretation. God is just. Interprets in our mind, God will keep the rules and he'll damn all those who he thinks haven't kept the rules. God is just. That's not what being just means. Let me tell you what being just means. Being just means that any judgment that you made that is a just judgment takes into account the mitigating circumstances of the person whom you are judging. So to be just doesn't mean God is just, so he has to enforce the rules. And I can prove that from Scripture. There was a gentleman who had an affair, shattered his marriage, had an illegitimate child by the affair, had the woman's husband murdered, because he had the power to do so, and then married the woman and brought her into his house. His name was David, and he became the most famous king of Israel. So he's already guilty of murder, he's already guilty of adultery in the context of keeping the rules and the commandments. And if you look at the man's life, you have never met a more dysfunctional father in all your life. His kids and his family were an absolute mess. But here's what the Bible says, David, a man after God's own heart. How can David be a man after God's own heart? Because God is just. 
And in the weaknesses of David and the foolishness of his choice, God saw the heart of David. So therefore, he has not dealt with us, as the psalmist then says, according to our sins, nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquity, but according to his loving kindness and tender mercy. Because as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Guess what? I don't judge my grandson Riley by simply what he does. I judge him by the intent of his heart. So sometimes what he does is very bad, but his heart is very good. So I don't judge him on the very bad. I judge him on his heart. And so I give him a break. I give him space. I give him time because I understand his heart. Now, in the Psalms, which are a wonderful record of the expression of human feeling, he says in the Psalms, he remembers that we are but dust. Or in other words, God knows that quite a bit of the time, you're just dumb stupid. And God knows that in spite of Jesus' ministry, In casting out demons, you can't cast out stupid. There's nowhere in the Bible that says, and they cast out stupid. And we have a tendency to stupidity. Often in our concepts and in our understandings, the way we do things. But he remembers that we are but dust. And so it says this, so as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. Now, who removed what from whom? Did you remove it from... Whom, or did the church remove it from whom? Or was it God arbitrarily arbitrarily that removed it? As far as the east is from the west, he removed our transgressions from us. Chris mentioned this on Wednesday night. The reason it says the east from the west is because if you head north, once you reach the north pole, you start heading south. So if it was as far as the north is from the south, you can reach the north and you can reach the south. The issue is if you start walking east, It doesn't matter where you are in the world, you're still going east, right? You're never going west. You're always going east. Or if you go west, you're always going west. It was the wonder of Scripture over 2,000, 3,000 years ago, giving that understanding that God was saying, you can't catch up your transgressions when God has removed them from you. You can't catch them up. And so the miracle of the gospel is God inviting us into his life. Now, here's what happened with the gospel. When it becomes all about hell and all about judgment, we then conclude we have to invite Jesus into our life when actually the opposite is true, that he is inviting us into his life because as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removed our transgressions from us. And so what I wanted to understand and wanted you to understand that an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in the God who's not real. But if you meet the God of heaven, he's the God who's real. So there are atheists in church because their God is not real. And there are atheists outside of the church because their God is not real. There are atheists in Buddhism, in Islam, in Christianity. Because unless it's the God who is the God of Jesus, which is my great quest at the moment, I'm grateful for my heritage, I'm grateful for all that I have been taught, but I also realize that as things move along in time, we pick up stuff. 
And I want to get back to see Jesus as a wonderful revelation of the Father who was so confusing to the religious people at the time that they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. They said, we want to crucify him because what he's saying is calling us to make such a radical change to our concept of belief that we'd rather get rid of him than change our concept of belief. My fear is... That as we encounter Jesus, the real Jesus today, is that we'd rather keep our concepts of belief than accept his challenge in our life today to meet this Jesus. So, some would call me an atheist or an agnostic. There are lots of people in the church community that would call me an atheist and an agnostic because I, in their view, do not believe in the same God that they believe in and they are might be right to some degree and uh, I don't say that with pride, I say that with sadness. So to finish I want to look at something that Jesus said just to leave you with the challenge. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 17. Jesus said this, neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins For if they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. You say, why did Jesus use that imagery with these people? Well, for two reasons, because they had wineskins. We don't, we have bottles. If you know anything about the production of wine and champagne... You will know that very often in wine cellars and champagne cellars, you get exploding bottles. For the same reason that Jesus talked about wineskins. Now, of course, the wineskin was a goatskin that had been oiled and prepared and made into a bottle so that you would carry wine in it. Now, Jesus didn't say nobody puts old wine into old wineskins. Because old wine is not a problem in old wineskins. But he said, but nobody puts new wine in an old wineskin. Why? Well, because old wine has stopped fermenting. So it stopped releasing gas as it ferments and, 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 and the sugars evaporate and the alcohol is produced. So old wine stopped moving. There's nothing going on in old wine. It is what it is and it will always be what it is. And so an old wineskin for old wine is absolutely fine. So if you want to stay just as you are, if you want an old version of the revelation of God in Jesus, there's no problem. You're not going to burst. There'll be no pressure on your life. But Jesus talked about the new wine of the Spirit, the new wine of life. When he came to the feast for his first miracle, what was Jesus' first miracle? He turned water into sparkling new wine. Because he's saying, what I'm about is producing new wine, not old wine. And the new wine is better. And he saved the best until now. So you see, you have to put new wine in a new wine scheme because new wine ferments, new wine moves, new wine grows, new wine stretches. And so you have to have a skin that will stretch with the development 
of the wine in order for the wine to become all that it's supposed to be. So Jesus comes on the scene as the new wine of God and says, if you're going to be able to contain who I am, you can't put it in your old model. You can't put it in your old structures. You're going to have to have a new wineskin for this new wine because if you try to put this new wine in your old structure, in your old way of believing, what's going to happen is your whole way of believing will shatter. It will break and then you'll lose the new and you'll lose the old and you'll just be confused and walking in a place of despair and death. You see, the issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ was always a new wine and it still is. And when we come back to him, it still works like new wine. It means that you cannot put it in old structures. You have to be willing to let that new wine come into a new wineskin. Now, the wine is his prerogative. The new wineskin is ours. You say, how do I become a new wineskin? You begin to rub the oil of truth on your heart to say, I'm willing to stretch. I'm willing to bend. I'm willing to move. I'm willing to be reshaped so that this new wine can become all that it's supposed to be. You see, the gospel of Jesus can never become all it's supposed to be if we try and put it in the old wineskin of the structures that we have developed. Because it has to move, and I'm going to use a word that will scare some of you half to death, it has to evolve, it has to develop, it has to become. In all ways, pressure in all directions, So tonight, I challenge you as I just close. Are you prepared to have a new wineskin for the new wine? If you're not, you could never experience the truth of the gospel that Jesus brought. You will experience a version of it. And you say, where does that leave me? Does that then mean that if I don't do that, it might not be the atheist and the agnostic that's going to hell, but it'll mean that I'm the one going to hell. Listen, God is just, God is kind. I think the grace of God is going to astound us and shock all of us because we never believed it was as big, as great, as wonderful and amazing as it is. That's not the issue, but the issue is that life within you today, that life delivering you from a Gehenna, the garbage dump of life, That life within you bringing a new genesis that changes darkness to light, chaos to order, and nothingness into something. That's the miracle of the new wine. All God asks of us is to come as a new wineskin. That means I don't have a preconceived agenda. That's so hard for me. Because I have so many concepts and thoughts about Christianity and God and church and belief. Many of which are very good. But he didn't say, find the bits that are very good and you don't have to change them. No man puts new wine into a wineskin unless he's first had a look and said, we'll keep the good bits of leather and we'll get rid of the bad bits of leather and we'll kind of re-piece this thing. No, he said you have to put new wine in a new wineskin. It's a willingness in the human heart to say, God, please be who you are. Jesus, be who and what you are. And be that in me. I remove the restrictions. I break free from the history. And I say, God, I want to meet the God who is really God, not be an atheist, who's not believing the God who's really God because I created another God. 
but the goodness, the kindness of the one who is known as the Abba, the Father of Jesus, who Jesus said, I am the Father of one, who John said, if you find this Jesus, you will have a new Genesis. And I believe that's the essence of the new birth that comes to us. We find a new Genesis, a new birth. A birth is a Genesis. God is saying, I want you to have that Genesis in your life. So will you come tonight as a new wineskin? Will you get free of some of the questions that we fight over that actually finish up with us trying to do a job that was never ours to do, to judge what's right and what's wrong and who's in and who's out and just concentrate on you to say, is my heart open to the God of heaven? Is my heart open to the revelation of God in Jesus? And can I allow the new wine that he brought to be poured into this wineskin? Just bow your heads for one moment. Father, as we come before you in this place tonight, I pray that new wineskins will be presented before you. That those new wineskins that are our choice to say, Jesus, here I am. Please, fill me. Let my life be saturated with the truth of who you are. As those prayers go up to you today, Father, I thank you that you hear us. And you answer us because you promised that you would. I thank you that you're not dealing with us tonight according to our sins or rewarding us according to our iniquity. But that same loving kindness that David talked about is here in this place tonight. So we come to you sometimes in our foolishness, sometimes in our lack of wisdom, sometimes in the stupidity of our dumb choices, but thanking you that right this moment there is a Genesis opportunity for us because the word has become flesh and lives among us. The Jesus of God, the Jesus of the Bible, the Christ who you sent, who is here to bring Genesis in our life. We remove the barriers. We de-religiousize ourselves right now. And say, Father, may we see you as you are. And Jesus, may we have a revelation of who you really are. And Holy Spirit, I believe in you. You are in that little gap between the A and the theist. The A and the Gnostic. So as you come in this little gap in here today, reveal the truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're done. I hope that's been helpful or confusing or something, as long as it was something. So we bless you. Please uh, feel free to stay for uh, Sunday afterwards. Also, let me just say to to many of you, some of you weren't here on Wednesday. Uh, I'll show you some pictures maybe next week, but uh, Chris and I were in the slums on Tuesday before we came home and have physically felt the, the results of that. Rather sadly, Chris was telling you about the place of some of those people live and cause HIV is endemic there and all kinds of issues but uh, but many of you know we do microloans for the sunflower project which is helping a lot of those who are either HIV affected or former sex workers to get out of the trade we've done 38 so far and the wonderful thing was we started our day on Tuesday at two of the businesses that you have started by your giving that are successful in blessing those families and helping those families so that they don't have to be in a lifestyle that is risky and dangerous to their health but also destroys them as people. And so we saw what's feeding and helping and blessing those kids and that's because you have sent those microloans and that was just an example to see those shops up and running and making good living. Uh, I just commend you and bless you and thought how fantastic that is that you are making a difference. You don't realize it today, 
But right now, four and a half hours earlier than we are in, in Goa, opposite the naval base, those shops are working right now, selling coconut milk and provisions and providing hope and life and help for people who are a lot worse off than we are. But you're doing that. It's working right now. So I just wanted you to know we bless you for that and thank you for your support. And they send their thank you for your support because it's working. We're making a difference to people's lives. And that's the kingdom coming for people. So bless you. Enjoy the rest of the night.